Hey everyone, you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast with Derek Stone and Conrad Geringer. This podcast is devoted to helping you find maximum performance with deliberate efficiency. Hey Conrad, how's it going? It is going well on this this Monday here in, uh, well, I'm in Nashville, you're in Cleveland, and it was a beautiful weekend. Yesterday was Father's Day, so we uh, had some fun activities. I ran with the crew in, in the morning, early in the morning. We knocked out the 11.2-mile loop, and then the rest of the day I was spending time with with Amelie and family, and we went on a hike, and we went to Dicey's Pizza, so it was a good good father's day first one what about you it was my first yeah one. uh well i got to race on father's day with a handful of working triathletes out in uh near toledo we did mommy bay and that was a lot of fun super fast course uh in one of the state parks right on lake erie um beautiful venue and then it came home and we had family over for father's day and cooked out a little bit had some burgers and hot dogs and just enjoyed company and and then uh, we kick back and relax the rest of the day. Nice. Nice. I know that working triathlete had some pretty solid performances at that race. The race oh, yeah. you did. Yeah. Yeah. It was so. a, a lot, lot of fun. Um, you know, we, we took the overall win in the Olympic for male, female, and then overall win in the men's uh, sprint try and overall sprint duathlon on the men's side as well. And then a lot of PRs, a lot of good performances across the board. Yeah, we had some, uh, well, race here, Old Hickory try. We didn't have as many working triathletes compete there, but Jason Chatham, he took the overall win and we had other athletes do well. Also shout out to Audrey. Um, Audrey, she did grandma's half marathon and she PRs. She ran, she ran 122, uh, in the half so very solid performance from her you know pr can't can't ask for anything better than that and she uh even split down to the second no kidding <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you want that's yep. what you want you know i told athletes a couple of weeks ago we had our you know sort of big local triathlon the music city triathlon here and we had you know a few dozen athletes compete and you know i said the, the way to to go fast on the run is to negative split and make your last mile your fastest. Mm-hmm. And especially if you go into the the run with that mentality and especially if conditions aren't great, like if it's hot, like it always is for for that race, uh, going out intelligently is always a wise thing to do because um, you can always close hard, but... <laughs> If you start overheating too early, you're done and the decay in performance is exponential. So we had a lot of athletes execute well, and that's, that's all that that should be a goal, you know, good execution, you know, whatever the outcome is, so long as you execute to your potential, that is all you need to have a good race. So, you know, and we saw that, um, but you know, it is that time of year where athletes are, are racing a lot or more frequently, you know, a lot of athletes are knocking out their say spring a races. And I think 
certainly within the team on our uh, on our forums, athletes are asking about what gear they should buy and and what uh, are the most beneficial sort of air purchases to improve aerodynamics on the bike that you know that they could uh, execute. So we wanted to do a podcast where we chat a little bit about you know aerodynamics and exactly what what are the best purchases you can make uh to go faster on the bike how do you save watts um what upgrades offer the most watts saved per dollar and we wanted to break it down and sort of chat a little bit about it but another thing that inspired this specifically was you know there's a lot of chatter online and you know certainly amongst our team about putting water bottles down your shirt um have you tried it yet where you put a water bottle down your shirt to go faster i haven't and i wish i would have thought about it yesterday because i would have tested it out and uh the course we did yesterday was super flat so it had been interesting to see I've done the course last year, but the the dynamics of the conditions would have been a little bit different, but mm-hmm. um, I just completely blanked. I only brought one bottle that I couldn't use. So it, it's going to happen though. I think uh, when I do Ohio 70.3, another flat course, uh, I'm des- definitely going to test out the uh, the water bottle because there's some really good evidence out there that shows some promising results. Exactly. You know, it's, you really can't, can't ignore it anymore. Uh, you know, you see a lot of athletes, they are, uh, you know, at the pro level also, they are shoving different things down their front jerseys. And and the goal there is to basically create a fairing on your chest. Um, and there has been some testing so arrow so if you go to arrowhighperformance.com uh you know jim matten he tested he actually tested it so we actually have hard data um because you saw athletes like i know magnus he put something down the front of his tri suit uh at a couple of races and you know you're seeing athletes put there i know there was one athlete who who gave up 60 seconds in t1 you know a pro athlete and he put a big uh basically camelback, like big water bladder down his, his tri suit and he couldn't zip it up. So he, he ended up giving up 60 seconds in T1 and he actually lost his lead. But as I, I believe he had the fastest bike split by two minutes. So, you know, you have to question, you know, what was the drag savings? Um, and so again, Jim Matten, he posted an article on a website, again, Arrow High Performance. And the watt savings is is not trivial. Um, so they tested a few different ways. You know, they did a 28 ounce bottle high on the chest or low on the belly, one and a half liter bottle um down there. And then I you know uh, at least one athlete tested, you know, the big uh three liter camelback bladder. Um, and every, pretty much across the board, putting something down there did save a lot. Um, you know, looking at the, the 28 ounce bottle down there, the typical savings is like a handful of Watts, say maybe five, six, maybe up to eight Watts. 
uh, the 1.5 liter bottle down the Jersey uh, saved usually like, again, it depended, but you know, call it 10 Watts on average. Um, certain athletes had absurd improvements, specifically the athletes who kind of have more of an upright position. I mean, one athlete saved 24 Watts by putting a 1.5 liter bottle down. It was a drag savings of 9.45%. Um, and it seemed like the higher you, you would, you put the 28 ounce bottle on your chest, the greater the drag savings, and then the larger the bottle. So the larger the fairing, the more Watts you saved. And basically what you're doing is you're kind of using that fairing to close that cavity, uh, you know, down below you. And that that's what we're trying to avoid when we're looking to enhance aerodynamics. We're trying to avoid, you know, holes, cavities, things that create turbulence. So, um, so with the watt savings, hard data. Are they also talking about the the time savings? What the the watts equate to for these athletes? Is, is there that data as well? Because it'll be interesting to see if uh, obviously the athlete you spoke to, if he lost a minute in transition, like how much time right. did he make up on the bike? You know, obviously having the fastest bike split is promising. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it, it depends definitely kind of how fast you're going. Um, the wattage savings that you know. Jim Mandon wrote about in, in his uh, post it, he keys off of race pace wattage. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know if that was just like, he just assumed 25 miles an hour is race pace, or he looked at, you know, each athlete's typical velocity when they are racing and keyed off of that. Um, so, you know, the faster you're, you're racing, the greater, you know, the drag savings is, but, um, I mean, in, in general, I mean, I've seen different, different things. One, so on arrow coach to sort of answer your question, uh, I was looking at some data and this one related to, to water bottles on the bike frame itself. And in the charts, it said, for example, a 900 milliliter bottle on the down tube uh, saves 8.2 Watts at 40 kilometers an hour. So, you know, that is around 25 miles an hour. And that equates to about three and a half minutes in an Ironman. Um, you know, so that's not trivial at all. That's, that's not trivial. Yeah. No. And again, I'm appealing to arrow coach here and, you know, about six Watts saves you about, you know, two and a half minutes in an Ironman. But again, this is at 40 kilometers an hour and this is via the protocol they, they use. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely going to depend though. I think how fast you're going mm -hmm. uh, and how much, how many Watts you're putting out sort of at baseline to go that fast. So it also depends on your CDA. So yeah, it's probably worth talking about mostly in this podcast. We want to talk about, uh, CDA, which is coefficient of aerodynamic drag times like frontal surface area. And so when we see, say CDA, we're basically talking about drag, how much drag you're generating on the bike. And, you know, this is, we, we quantify CDA with a number and, you know, just see to give a ballpark of what it means, you know, a good time trialist, you know, they might have a CDA of 0.23. Um, and the lower your CDA, you know, the better, obviously. 
some of the the best, most aerodynamic time trialists in the world. They can get their CDA under 0.20. You know, so they're in the upper teens typically, like 0.18 is is super, super low. Um an average road cyclist is probably going to be up in that like 0.30 range super aerodynamic road cyclist 0.24 and you know oftentimes we speak in terms of watts per kilogram to talk about you know how strong of a rider somebody is but you know on most courses like most specifically flat courses um watts to cda matters a lot more um, so that's why on flat courses, sort of like larger riders who are really aerodynamic, but who have big engines can outride, you know, smaller, more efficient riders. Cause it's more about power to drag. So, um, yeah, it, it's good to just talk about that, you know, and it, it's possible for you to actually calculate your CDA in different ways. You know, you can go to the wind tunnel, you can go, you know, do different sort of testing methodologies on closed loops and drop files into software like a golden cheetah that it has a uh they have like a method to calculate cda so you can understand you know if i wear this helmet my cda is this if i wear another one it's it's a little bit lower or higher and you can do all of these different tweaks um but but yeah so you know number one what, what what would you say the first consideration should be if somebody wants to improve aerodynamics on the bike where do you think they should look look first they they should start by getting a, a bike fit a proper bike fit and dialing in their position and uh, this is something i think a lot of people overlook and um you know there's i know in every area every major city there's quality bike fitters and this is something where you can find speed based on your position and everyone has a unique anatomy so <clears throat> a lot of parts on the bikes are interchangeable you know from your your saddle to the you know, the stem, the aero bars, all that stuff can be moved around or, or replaced to optimize your position. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, your body is going to compose at least 80% of, of your CDA, you know, anything that's a leading edge and that hits that wind first is going to, it's a big deal and a little, you know, imperfections, things that cause drag will make a big difference. Um, so, you know, you think about your helmet, that makes a big deal. You know, the first thing that the wind hits, usually it's honestly your hands, mm -hmm. you know, so you know, the question is, you know, aero bars, what, what aero bars do you have? Um, you know, you think about how your, uh, you know, the, the front end, like your brakes hitting the, the wind, you know, having, an internal brake system, especially one that, you know, covers up cables is going to make a big difference because you want as clean of, uh, you know, basically frontal surface area smaller and the lower and narrower you can get, you know, to an extent, that's a good thing. Obviously you still have to put out power and there are other factors that contribute to drag, like just how the air is flowing over your body. Um, you know, certain, the obvious things that, we always look at when we're looking at a position. I mean, if you're going to do the eyeball test again, you want to minimize frontal surface area. So, uh, again, the concept of, you know, decently flat back, you don't want to be sitting up like on a road bike, 
Um, but you know, I think very few athletes nowadays, especially in triathlon and long course, very few athletes have a perfectly flat back anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, they're certainly, I think more narrow than they used to be. And there is more of an emphasis on, on closing all of those gaps. So, you know, those cavities that catch air, those are, uh, they contribute to drag substantially. So you think about the distance between your hands and your helmet or your chin, uh, we're seeing higher hands positions pretty much across the board in triathlon. Now, part of the reason we're seeing that is it closes that gap. Um, you know, you have to consider, consider other, other things like, you know, what's the air hitting if you're, you know, if you're lifting your hands, is it hitting a water bottle? Like what's going on there? But you know, it's, again, the trend is to closing that cavity and, and getting the shoulders narrow. Um, so you have to be careful when you, I think, strive for a high hands position because it's possible your shoulders can splay out, but you know, to the extent, if you're not going to go to a wind tunnel or do some type of CDA testing, the narrower you can get the better could, I mean, I've, I've heard conflicting things about, you know, age groupers just raising their error bars without, you know, thinking about it or analyzing your shoulders. But if you lift your front end a little bit so that you can achieve a high hands position and you're getting narrow, there's probably a good chance that you're going to be a little bit more aerodynamic, but you know, test it just to confirm. Mm -hmm. Don't just randomly increase your error bars without looking at your frontal surface area. Yeah. It's also good to think about a position that's sustainable as well. And yeah. you, you mentioned a lot of athletes now do not have like the flat backs. And I think part of that is due to, you know, triathletes have to run off the bike uh, versus a traditional mm -hmm. time trialist. They don't need to run off the bike. They just got to get to the finish line. But no matter, you know, what race you're doing, you want to make sure the position is sustainable for, you know, your, your anatomy and what you're comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, we think about the muscles and muscles tightening and the ability to put out power. And another factor is your ability to like just consume nutrition and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and absorb it. If you're, you know, really low and your hip angle is pinched off and your stomach is getting battered by your thighs and it's just kind of closed off, that could be unsettling and it could impact your ability to take in you know, nutrition and fluid at an appropriate rate. So yeah, it isn't necessarily the case that lower is better. Um, no, I mean, just to be honest, it probably is to a point like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's good to probably be lower than your bike comes stock, but you know, you gotta consider all of it, you know, to the extent that you can be just like a solid pointed, uh, shape, you know, or rounded shape to the extent you can be a rocket, <laughs> you should, um, and again, eliminate cavities and things like that. And, um, you know, it's also good to think about the surface area. So yeah, number one position basically. So go to a, get, get a bike fit and a good fitter will be able to help you get aerodynamic, but also ensure that you can put out power because that is huge. And a one athlete in particular, I'm thinking about, she got a bike fit and, uh, she, her power like dropped tremendously and sure it was aerodynamic, but like the gap between her ability, say her, you know, critical power on the time trial bike versus the road bike was, it's a huge spread. It's like 40 mm -hmm. Watts. That's not okay. Um, she needs to be in a less aggressive position or, you know, we need to figure something out. So she's 
get in another fit immediately because you know <laughs> her she can still put power on the road bike so it isn't like some variable caused her to just lose her ability to put out power uh it's that there's a huge delta we know between the tt bike and the, the road bike even controlling for like power because we tested on the, the trainer but um you know think about those things but moving back to so, so the surface area so before you even look at you know wheels and all these other fancy upgrades you know you should look at your jersey um you don't want anything flapping nothing mm -hmm. loose so the tighter the better um, when it comes to a tri suit or a jersey, um, going from you know, like maybe like a typical jersey, which is like a little loose that you might see on the average person cruising around, you know, the countryside on on a weekend. Um, compare that to a a tight skin suit. Um, you know that that could be worth fifteen, even twenty watts at twenty five miles an hour, um, and. You know, that was like, if you look at Silka, they have a, uh, a good page on their website where they kind of talk about the the differences between like a loose fitting Jersey and a, and a tight skin suit. They're a good source for understanding aerodynamics. Um, and, and this is something that people can, you definitely want to try different sizes too. You know, I, I know that we have our general U S sizing for like what we normally wear, but a lot of tri suits people can size down generally, and I know I do. And I know Conrad, you typically do too. Yep. Um, to get a better fit, like you want that as tight to your skin as possible. You know, reducing wrinkles over your skin as well. Um, but yeah, the the tighter the the fit, the overall, you know, you're going to just minimize drag overall. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in general, the tight tighter the better. And one. Uh, Thing. So we were looking at, I know you and I have been looking at tri suits and, mm -hmm. you know, figuring out how, like what, how to maximize aerodynamics. Like what is the most aerodynamic tri suit? And obviously you see a lot of ribbing on tri suits, like on the sleeves and, and, uh, the shoulders and things like that. And, uh, it, it it's interesting because aerodynamics oftentimes does not work intuitively, <laughs> you know, uh, you'd think like the smoother, the better, but you know, with certain shapes, like with the arm shape, it's, it's, that's not the case. So, um, you know, we did some research and, and recently you know, last year, uh, at the Commonwealth games team, England, people noticed that their skin, skin suits weren't smooth, but, you know, but the unique thing that they did is they wore base layers that contained ridges, um, you know, rather than the, the outer layer and, and the ribbed base layers that uh you know they they wore apparently tested much faster in in testing um and in one article talking about it with cycling week on cycling weekly it says um what this this does is you know that striped base layer it it trips the surface makes it more turbulent and that sort of spinning vortex that it creates, it infills the pocket of low pressure left behind the arms as it moves through the air. So this ribbed fabric with the smooth overlayer works pretty much exactly the same. It can just be a bit more targeted. So, you know, it's like that it, it's turbulence, that vortex that it creates can be a good thing. And it's, it's interesting. Yeah, this is this is why golf balls have you know 
um, divots in it because yeah. it, a golf ball will travel further with those divots rather than like a smooth ball. And, uh, that's the best analogy to, uh, to kind of compare it to. Exactly. And, you know, so that was, we saw Tim England do that. And this is probably a good time to talk about like aero socks or calf guards specifically. Um, cause I know a lot of our athletes are wearing calf guards and, uh, one, sort of similar to the this ribbed base layer that I was just talking about, um, watch shop, you know, they came on their website. They talk about this, uh, these calf sleeves they, they developed and they call, call it airbridge technology. So it's patented airbridge technology, but I think it works via the same concept that we just talked about with team England and says that the Airbridge technology works by stretching a smooth fabric over ribbed fabric. Uh, so the raised ridges form a suspension of material like a suspension bridge to disrupt the airflow by the ridge and then further alter it by the suspended fabric, causing minuscule air particles to enhance displacement of the boundary layer. Um, so, you know, somebody more, uh, you know, who has better vocab than, than I, and, or, you know, aerospace engineers can speak more intelligently <laughs> than I can on this, but, uh, you know, these things make a difference. So watch shop, they say that it saves up to 12 Watts, these cap sleeves, uh, and they're among the best investment on the market with the highest dollar per watt arrow gain. So, um, you know, tread like user discretion, but, you know, consider that, um, that's not a trivial game. Um, and I know for a few years I've used the the rule 28 calf arrow guards and I like them. Um, but yeah, so fabric, fabric, skin is slow. So tight fabric usually is faster. Um, and then what else? So, so you know, we went from position to like, clothing what covers you and then it's probably worth talking about a next common upgrade and that's an aero helmet um and i mean what what aero helmet do you use so i have the rudy project wing helmet which uh it's been a big upgrade over their previous uh aero helmets it's one of the the faster ones out there um but mm -hmm. i know you use the aero head helmet right yep and the thing about aero helmets, though, it's it's really good to test based on your position. Um, obviously, if, it, if you have the access to the, the wind tunnel, that would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the helmet is something that interacts with your body, and it's good to to test, you know, with each person as well. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's a pretty good bet that if you select any like mass market aero helmet it's probably going to be faster than you know say just a road helmet which is basically maximum turbulence mm -hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> road helmets they have holes in them they're meant to uh you know cool you off and that turbulence is not what you want so you know that teardrop shape in the world of aerodynamics is is fast mm -hmm. you know so uh, and that's what an aero helmet is. So, but you do want to consider how the aero helmet interacts with, you know, your shoulders, potentially the frame, like where are your hands in relation to the, the helmet and the tail and everything. So, 
yeah, but like to your point, I think the big three, based on people who do a lot of wind tunnel testing, they, you know, the Arrowhead, the Rudy Project Wing, again, the new one, and Louis Garneau P9, they test pretty fast on everybody. And, but I also think that they tend to be the most popular too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe there's another one out there that is good. Like, you know, I've heard good things about Oakley and, and a bunch of other ones, you know, cask, but, um, you know, if you're not going to test, then you're pretty much just guessing and you might as well, I tell athletes to get the arrowhead, you know, it also has MIPS technology. So it's, you know, it'll keep your noggin safe. So, um, all these things are good. Yeah. But savings wise, you know, 25 miles an hour, you know, they can save, you know, 10, 15 Watts, uh, pretty much guaranteed. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's a good investment. It should be the first sort of, I think, larger investment. Like you need a tri suit anyway. So get a tight one, mm -hmm. um, you know, calf guards, you know, 50 bucks maybe. Um, and then you have an arrow helmet depending, yeah, call it a hundred to 300 bucks. Um, it's a good way to save, save some Watts. I know a couple of people have asked, you know, in our forums about using an arrow helmet over a road helmet based on heat. I've never had an issue with overheating with an arrow helmet on. Um, I know you're, you are generally a heavier sweater. Have you ever had an issue with that? No, honestly. Um, you know, you're rolling your, the body, there's a good evaporative cooling effect. Just going 25 miles an hour. Anyway, I did Kona. It was a hot day in Kona. And actually when I went to Kona, I only brought the arrowhead and I did all my riding in the the, the arrowhead, you know, I sweat five to six pounds an hour. I'm a heavy sweater and, you know, I, I don't think it really, I mean, it, it is going to be a little bit hotter, but is it going to impact performance? You know, I, I would say that the benefit outweighs the danger of mm -hmm. overheating. I think if you're going to overheat, if an arrow helmet is going to cause you to overheat, like you're going to be having issues no matter what, like it is going to be an extremely hot day. And that's probably not going to be the deciding factor that pushes your core temp up that, you know, extra degree that is going to lead to, you know, a disastrous race. Um, but I don't know people, maybe people who are super sensitive, they, they can, but I, I would never recommend an athlete wear a road helmet in a time trial because of heat, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, unless they have sort of outrageous physiology, honestly. If it's long course, you can always grab water at the aid mm -hmm. stations and dump it all over you. You know, there, there's crevices, you can get it into the helmet anyway, cool off. So right, it's a good strategy. So that's a good, you know, watts per dollar saved, a narrow helmet is good. And again, think about it, just let's call it 15 watts. The next thing is, uh, you know, water bottles. We talked about water bottles down the chest. And I briefly talked about, you know, the penalty of having a 900 milliliter water bottle on the, the down tube. Um, but let's talk specifically about water bottle placement. So I always tell athletes, you don't want any water bottles between your legs, only behind the saddle or in between your arms. Um, cause the, the penalty is substantial. Uh, so arrow coach, if you go to arrowcoach.com, you know, they did some testing and they, they tested water bottle placement. And so, you know, you have a down tube and a seat tube between the legs. The worst place is to put it on the down tube. So a 900 mil water bottle, 
it's an 8.2 watt penalty. They say that's equivalent to three hours, 20 minutes, or sorry, three minutes, 20 seconds in an Ironman. You put it on the seat tube, it's a 5.7 watt, watt penalty. So two and a half minutes in an Ironman. Um, if you put it behind the saddle, it's only a two and a half watt penalty, about a minute in an Ironman. And then, uh, you know, if it's between the, the arrow ball, arrow bars, it's, you know, it's a, it's a watt. <laughs> so it's essentially arrow neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, nowadays cycling manufacturers, they are sort of cleverly designing hydration systems to sort of act as a fairing. And in a, in many cases, you know, the, it's possible that the water bottle could actually enhance aerodynamics if it's out front. So maybe instead of the air initially hitting your, like if you can make your sort of cockpit integrated with the hydration system in a way that is actually aerodynamic, I mean, it could be, it could have positive benefits, you know, having some, a water bottle down there, but it has to be shaped a certain way. It has to interact with, you know, your front end. So again, that leading edge is important. So, you know, if, if it's placed cleverly, you know, it could enhance aerodynamics. I think that has to be tested on a case by case basis, but you know, basically what you're saying, what what we are saying is water bottles between the aero bars or behind the saddle. That's it. And that's, and you also mentioned, I know we had a call about this, even an aero bottle on the frame is going to cause additional drag as well. So it's not even worth putting in like an aero bottle on the down tube or seat tube as well. Yeah, exactly. A lot of, of athletes to vast about that, you know, these, these aero bottles that go, maybe they fill sort of that triangle in the frame, but the data that I've seen is, you know, those are more aerodynamic usually, but not always than round bottles. Um, but they still cause drag and unless the frame is built around that specifically. And I think I can't remember what company did it, but they sort of, it might be a Trek speed concept. Cervelo has one that's integrated. Got it. So they, if they do wind tunnel testing and they literally, you know, design the frame around this bottle. Okay. That's different. Like you have to look at it on a case by case basis, but otherwise you're guessing. And the balance of probability is that it's going to cause a little bit of drag, much less than a round bottle. And, you know, if the question is, you know, going without nutrition or going with nutrition and giving up a couple watts, yeah, you want the nutrition mm-hmm. in a in a long race, but you know, so use your best judgment. Um, but from from everything I've read, you don't want anything in between there. So, um, but good stuff. And then also in the water bottle realm, we already talked about bottles down the chest and again we'll we'll see at a certain point so this is the thing with triathlon like it at a certain point things become silly mm-hmm. and you know it's kind of fun like i don't mind you know nerding out or geeking out but uh it for certain athletes i can understand it seeming annoying where it's like oh great now i have to worry about shoving a water bottle down my jersey like i just want to swim ride my bike and uh and run and just i want the mo- the fittest athlete who executes best to win but i also think that what attracts people to triathlon is you know they just love tweaking and trying to optimize because a lot of this is fun too so mm-hmm. yeah 
So I, I assume you saw the photo of Joe Skipper set up. He had the bottles yeah. on the outside of his arrow bars. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if the results were posted on that, but I know he's a, a guy that goes to the wind tunnel. So I'm sure it was tested and validated as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, again, I'm not informed enough to understand exactly what's going on there. It seems like those are filling the cavity between his head and uh, arms, maybe. Um, but to the extent that they're like on either side of his head, I don't think that that would improve aerodynamics because, you know, it's just going to go because then you're just adding more frontal surface area. But mm -hmm. again, I don't know. It's they, they seem to know what, what they're doing. So I'd like to see the wind tunnel data on a few different riders. I mean, I could, who knows, I could see it being, being faster. I don't, I don't know if we'll see wide adoption of those because they're basically two arrow bottles in between the head and the arms and hands. Right. Yep. So <clears throat> seems like it could also be dangerous if you have to sit up or something like your forearms might hit the bottles. I don't know. Um, or maybe it's fast and simple and, we'll see it, you know, widely adopted in two years time. You know, I know when was, uh, did, did Dan Emfield invent the arrow bars? Who invented the arrow bars? Somebody, you know, 30 years ago, but, uh, they were not widely adopted for, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of years. They were sort of seen as zany. Um, but then Greg Lamond, you know, crushed that, you know, last time trial to take down, um, was it was it Fignon? Was the other guy's name? He would be in the he, literally the the Tour de France came down to that last the last stage, which was a time trial. It was a pretty short time trial. Le Mans did uh, he used the arrow bars, and back then arrow bars were very new, and he made up something outrageous like two minutes over, you know, not a very short time trial. And uh, after that, pretty much everybody used arrow bars in time trials. But, uh, yeah, there are a lot of zany things that we've seen. Um, and then, you know, similarly, we're thinking about leading edge stuff. Handlebars are another thing to, to think about. Um, you know, cause I know all base bars and try, I mean, they're not round, you know, they're shaped and sort of that, I don't know if it's like what you would call it, like a, a airfoil or yeah. teardrop shape and then uh if you compare round you know normal round handlebars to to those i mean you can save six to eight watts again cleaning up any cables there should be no cables exposed to the front end um so pay attention to your front end pay attention to your cockpit arrow bars base bar all that um and then i think the last like purely aerodynamic factor to consider wheels um you know to there are a few things to think about so you know typically in time trialing aerodynamics is more important than the weight of the wheels deeper rims are usually faster to the extent you can actually handle the bike and you know flow i think they did a lot of good testing you know flow wheels they uh released a bunch of charts over the years. And, you know, one that I always like to kind of appeal to is, you know, the, the normal, you know, stock Mavic open pros compared to their 60 millimeter carbon, uh, wheel set, it saves 23 Watts at 25 miles an hour. You 
Mavic Open Pro, probably not the best stock wheel set. You know, basically no rim depth or very minimal rim depth. Um, but you know, about 20-ish watts, that's not trivial. Um, so not a bad upgrade, but they're expensive. So what wheels are you running now? I have the NV 7.8s, but I run the Premier Tactical Disc on race day. And, uh, you know, the, the from what I understand, the front wheel matters the most when it comes to aerodynamics because it's that, that first surface is hitting and the yep. rear wheels protect a little bit more. Obviously, the disc is still faster than like a deep wheel in the back, but it's not going to be as, as important as the front wheel and the depth there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the premier tactical on the back and then the NV 7.8 on the front. Yeah. I mean, I run the, the red crown, so they're 88s up front and, uh, I also run the premier disc wheel in the back. It's, uh, it's a pretty good one. It's light, you know, full structure disc wheel, probably the best value out there. You know, Ren also has a good sort of cheap disc, um, but there are a lot of good good options. You don't you don't need to get, you know, the three thousand dollar zip disc to save. The, the, the main benefit there is again, you just close the gap. It mm-hmm. just needs to be solid. <laughs> you know, you want good hubs, obviously, but at a certain point, lubricated metal and lubricated metal can only get so efficient. So, um, you know, I'm an advocate of just like a a good value disc back there if somebody's looking to save some money and you know, reinvest it elsewhere, but yeah. But yeah. And if you're on a budget even more, so you could even get like a, a wheel cover and, uh, they have mm-hmm. tested well, you know, same, same thing. You're just covering over the spoke. So reducing the turbulence over the spokes and that can be, I, I think what a wheel cover might cost like a hundred bucks, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. hundred bucks. You know, the, I ran one for years and was very happy with it. Um, you know, the thing is you're basically creating a training like whatever wheels rear wheel you put it on you know, you're basically turning it into a disc wheel i never once i put it on i didn't take it off mm-hmm. you know some athletes you know put it on take it off put it on take it off that's a pain in the butt at a certain point you should probably just get a disc wheel if you're going to do that but you know if you have a just a set of racing wheels that you only race on you know i think it's wise to pay 100 bucks and throw that on there if you don't want to spend you know 850 bucks on a premier disc or something else. Um, so, but yeah, wheels, another good upgrade. Again, that 23 watt number, if anything, that's high. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, if you're looking to go as fast as you can, you need to need to do that. And then I think the last thing worth looking at is not necessarily aerodynamics relates more to friction. So, well, Rolling resistance, we don't need to bring up and talk about tires because we had an entire podcast on that. So look back if you want to hear about tires and rolling resistance, which is really the other side of the equation for, uh, uh, you know, it's like we think about CDA and then CRR. So like drag and rolling resistance, those are the two biggest factors for going fast. But, you know, we also think about efficiency of the drivetrain. So we probably should just chat briefly about that for athletes looking to, you know, improve the efficiency there i know that you you do some very specific things to the drivetrain especially on race day like you know a specific type of chain and making it clean and all that first i'll, I'll 
preface that I clean my bike often and, and every triathlete should do it. Um, one, it's going to obviously be faster, but also it's going to give you the longevity of the drive, drive chain too. There's more friction. It's going to wear out the, the chain and the chain rings and derailers a little bit more. So, um, in the past I have used like wax change. I try, actually tried to at Chattanooga, but I was, uh, a little bit chaotic and couldn't get it on correctly. So I just uh, went with the rock and roll lube and made sure my chain was super clean. But yeah, I think the rock and roll lube is one of the best out there just from a application. You know, it's easy to apply. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a good lubricant, but it also helps clean the chain as well. Um, but I think the biggest thing I really want to convey is clean your bike, clean your drivetrain frequently because it is free <laughs> essentially. Yep. And, um, it's, it's just something we should do and get in the habit of. And I know a lot of athletes tend to neglect that and, um, it can cause issues down the road. Keeping it clean is number one. And, you know, yes, every time you ride outside, you really should just wipe down your chain, relube it. Like it doesn't take any time really. Um, to your point, I like the rock and roll gold also, because it just makes it so easy to keep your chain clean. Um, you know, you can go the waxing route, you know, where you remove the grease and then wax your chain and, you know, that keeps it clean. You know, I, uh, it, it I think it does test a little bit faster, you know, if you, if you wax it and you, you wax it often enough, you keep it clean enough, you know, that's not a bad approach, but the rock and roll gold, it's just, I think it's just easier for a lot of athletes. And over time, I think the majority of triathletes, like, just using that is going to be the wisest move because that it tests very well, you know, mm -hmm. in, in testing, you know, it's very efficient, minimizes friction a lot, but it also cleans it. You can dump as much as you want on wipe as much as you want off. I never really like remove the chain and decrease it like over its life. Cause that's, I mean, if it gets really dirty, yes, but that stuff is solid. Like you just dump it on, you wipe it off after every ride. That's all you have to do. Um, you know, I think the line, when I think about, so the, there are like race chains that companies create. So, you know, like Silica, they have their you know, pre-waxed pre secret chain. And, you know, a lot of these chains, so I know they make one, um, I know Premier makes one and, you know, there are different, they all kind of do the same thing in that they, they take chains I believe they take stock chains and mm -hmm. then they, they polish them and they make it, you know, really, really smooth. So there are, there are fewer imperfections on the surface, like the links. And then, you know, they lube it, they apply a different coating depending on which one you're getting. And then, you know, they recommend that they, uh, you know, each company recommends that you use their proprietary, you know, super secret lube. And then it, lasts for you know maybe a couple hundred miles so and then it sort of loses its its benefit uh supposedly but you know th these companies claim that you know you can save you know it's like 30 percent more efficient than other you know just normal stock chains that you lube up well so um you know if an athlete is really really wanting to do every last thing i think that you know it's it's potentially reasonable to get one of these I do draw the line at oversized pulleys. You know, I draw the line at recommending those at least. You know, they look cool, and I'm all for the aesthetics of them. But 
Um, so you used what chain did you use at a chat? I just had the the SRAM flat top, but I did not. Okay. So I have an ice friction chain. Um, yeah. But when I was trying to get it on, I was having a couple of issues. So I just threw back the the chain that is not waxed. But yeah, going back to what you just mentioned, you know, these these proprietary chains, they they have a generally like a wax coating um, that tests really well. And, and the, the thing is, is when it gets dirty, the wax just kind of peels off. So it it's not mm-hmm. it's not holding the dirt and muck to the chain. It's just peeling off as it rotates around the drive chain. Yeah, I mean, I think the ice friction. I've heard different things, but I know that that is among the the best. Mm-hmm. You know, it eliminates friction, reduces friction by a fair amount, according to the studies that I've I've read. And the thing is, a lot of these studies are done by the companies themselves. So I don't know how to. Again, we're talking about marginal gains at this point. Everything we talked about before these, I think, are pretty straightforward, obvious upgrades. You should do this last. Um, you know, something to contemplate, certainly. But um, so your but your chain. So you use the uh, the flat top. So what what is the benefit of that one? That's the the newest SRAM drive chain. So I have a one by, and their SRAM access. It just uses the. I don't think the chain is any faster. It's just that's what they make now. So the, the yeah. Shimano chain is like kind of a double sided. But um, right. so I guess we can talk about one by. So I run a one by uh, setup, which is I have a fifty two chain ring in the front, and then a ten by twenty eight rear cassette, and that that will do. I can go anywhere with that. Just about you know, if I'm going up a steep hill. Um, my cadence drops a little bit, but you know, I could throw on like a 30 or 32 on the back and I'd probably go anywhere at that point, but mm-hmm. riding in North, uh, West or I'm sorry, Northeast Ohio there, it's pretty flat where I live. So that cassette is, is perfectly acceptable for anywhere I'm going to go right now. Yeah. I run the one by two and it is more efficient because, you know, the larger diameter, it creates less friction. So mm-hmm. that's. Yeah, it's a good thing to bring up for sure. Um, when we think about the the watts savings again, I think this one is probably also on the you know I don't want to say trivial end, but yeah, it's probably worth a couple of watts. Um, so I like the one by for simplicity's sake for mm-hmm. sure, and I run the fifty three up front and then on the rear like at Chattanooga I ran. 1128 at Kona, I ran 1132. That was plenty. I, uh, I ascended the Col de Vance on, um, 5336. So mm-hmm. 36 in the back and that was more than enough. So, uh, you know, that was like, what was that? Like 3000 feet of climbing. <laughs> Just about, yeah. All in one stretch. <laughs> it took, I remember the file. It took like an hour to get up that, that climb just relentless. And it, uh, yeah, one by worked just fine for that, but a 36 on the back, that is a big cassette. You need a clutch derailleur if you're going to do that. And I actually stopped it because it would, it was having issues. The derailleur was having issues getting up to 36. So, yeah. And if, I the call to Vance, you know, I'm not that is a very rare occurrence, but 1132, honestly, or sorry, uh, 5332 is definitely good enough for any riding that you know, 
Iron Counter in Middle Tennessee or any any races that you know, I'm going to be doing. If I go to Norseman again, probably throw on the 36 in the back because, you know, there are many times you're riding during that race and you see signs that say, you know, 10% grade for the next 10 kilometers. And, you know, it's just outrageous. So <laughs> you uh, you definitely want your gearing for something like that. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, one buys are awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people ask why, why I go one buy and like yourself, it, it's just more of simplicity. Um, one less thing to worry about. There's no front derailleur. And now with all these new drive chains coming out, if you have a 12 speed, like you can accommodate whatever gear you need and it yep. just makes it easier. So exactly. And they're a little bit more efficient, uh, arguably a little bit more aerodynamic because you lose one of those, those rings. Again, we're talking about super trivial gains, but they're all these things add up. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I guess like one last thing to mention is, you know, something that's free, you know, that you can do is obviously training in the position that you're going to race in and not only to adapt to it and be comfortable in it um but being resilient in that position is going to be useful and then like on race day just having that mental strength to stay there too because i know a lot of times people get tempted to get out every time you get out of arrow you're just losing time so mm -hmm. you want to make sure you're diligent and just staying low throughout the race and uh taking advantage of all the, you know, minimizing drag as much as possible. That is a great point. Yeah. All of this is worthless. If, you know, during a race you're sitting up because you can't maintain your arrow position and you don't want to be spending, you know, $15,000 on optimized, you know, cutting edge aerodynamic equipment, and then not train appropriately and uh, sit up because it negates everything again at least 80% of drag is your body and you gotta be an arrow for any of this stuff to justify any of this. Like, I don't think you need fitness to justify, you know, buying speed, like mm -mm. genuinely, I think you can work on your engine and buy speed in this way, but don't buy speed. If you're not planning to just stay an arrow for your race, <laughs> I think that's a principle that I can uh, get behind. Yep. Definitely. Cool. Well, I think that covers everything. This is a great podcast. Um, you know, if uh, anyone has any questions about what we talked about today, you can reach us at info at workingtriathlete.com um, or you can head over to our website, workingtriathlete.com and submit a form um, with any questions you have. Or if you're interested in, in reaching out to a coach, uh, head over to the website and fill out a survey. Absolutely. I know you and I, are, our rosters are full, unfortunately, um, but we have a few other awesome coaches you know, taking on athletes. Um, so if you're interested, feel free to, to reach out. But thanks for listening and we will see you next time. All right. See you.